Our scripture reading is Luke 23, 44 through 56. As we look at this last part of Christ and his suffering and humiliation, before we look next week at the triumph of, of Christ. So uh, let's uh, listen to God's holy word as it comes to us from Luke chapter 23, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. O Lord, our God in heaven, we give you praise, O Lord, that you, the infinitely glorious God, infinitely above us in wonder and majesty and splendor, O Lord, you have been willing to come and seek to connect with us by speaking to us and through sending your Son into this world in human form. And so, Lord, we pray that even as you have spoken to us, we pray, O Lord, that we would know your presence in this word, that you would help us to see the greatness of Christ and what he has done for us, and that your name might be glorified through it. We pray, O Lord, that you would encourage us, even as we look at these sad events, knowing what is, what is ahead in this text, but also knowing that his great love for us. Let it animate our hearts, and let it encourage us, let it send us out in service to the glory of your name. And it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. So last November, uh, my my grandmother, Grandma Basham, as I called her, uh, passed away. And I found it interesting in the months since then that I've, I've thought upon her, her death a lot more than a, a lot of others that I've experienced in my life. And maybe it's because I've thought about um, <coughs> telling, telling her something or asking her something and then realizing, well, I can't do that. And I also have thought about the fact that I have, I have one grandparent left um, who's still living. That's my my uh, grandfather, David Keith, whom, who has been here. Um, and he is, he is 92, but he's in good health, and I may have him for quite a while. But, what's, but, <clears throat> but what has struck me is the fact that once he's passed away, there's, like, there's a whole generation uh, kind of above me that is then gone. And it's just been a reminder to me that, that that's where I'm headed to, that each one of us is headed towards that same end. 
And you know, this is not the way things were supposed to be. This is not what God created the world to experience. And this is always, when we have, when, we don't, might not see it as clearly when we have the death of a grandparent who's been struggling with health issues for a long time and, and it passes away in their 90s. But you know where we, we find it um, so poignant that this is not the way it's supposed to be? It's like the experience that I had in, in visiting with a woman just very recently who was at, it was at an occasion where, where she was rejoice, where everybody was rejoicing and having a good time. But then she realized this made her think of the death of her own son. And she, realized, and she, she had to leave that, that place because it hurt her so much. And, and uh, my heart went out to her because it's just the, there's nothing that really can hurt you more than the death of a beloved child. You always expect that you're going to live past them, right? And it's a reminder that this isn't the way that things were supposed to be. And it's easy for us to, to run away from this in our minds and not think about this. But the fact is, it's something we do need to think about because it's something that is a part of our life, that it is short, that it ends, that we don't know when it'll end. And we all have to face death. So today we have a passage where we are dealing with a death. We are dealing with a death. It is the death of the Lord Jesus. And so we want to consider, is there anything special in this death that we want to see? And what does it teach us about death? What does it teach us about our own death and how we are to think about it and process it? And then you'll see that it doesn't just talk about death, but it also talks about burial. So we have the death and we have the burial of Jesus and I'm, so those will be the two points, and then I'll draw out a few conclusions from all that we've said about the suffering of Christ over the past few weeks. So let's talk about the death of Jesus first. This text begins with two contrary things, two strange events that tell us, that speak of the exact opposite thing. The first is the darkness that comes on the land. So imagine this scene. Here is Jesus who's been crucified, and it's clearly an unusual crucifixion. A lot's been going on. It's the whole city is paying attention to what's going on, and they crucify him, and there he is hanging upon the cross, and all of a sudden, it gets about in the middle of the day, it gets black as night with huge clouds coming over. And you can't even see the sun. It's an arresting event. You know, we, it seems like we've had some things like that. And it's always, even when there's nothing, you know, not something as poignant as a crucifixion. It's always like, wait a minute here, you know? And so when you look at that, that's what's happening. As all these people are around, some of them mocking Jesus, some of them no doubt weeping. And all of a sudden, this black cloud comes over. It's a reminder of what Jesus said that, this is the hour of darkness, that this is the time when it rains. But it's something more, because it points to an image in the Scriptures that is constant, that is prevalent. And it is that the dark black clouds represent the judgment of God. And so when the prophets speak of the judgment of God coming on a particular nation... They speak of it like Joel did in Joel chapter 2. As a day of darkness and gloom. 
a day of clouds and blackness. That is the day of judgment. So it's like the day of judgment is coming. Now the irony of this, or the the difficult thing to understand, is that always when the judgment of the Lord is coming, when the darkness and the gloom comes, it is because they have sinned against the Lord. As it says in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 16, where you speak of a similar um, issue. And so the judgment, the blackness, comes because of the sin of those upon whom it comes. But yet, Jesus had no sin. And he was so bold that he would say to crowds of people who even opposed him, which one of you can, can convict me of any sin? Now imagine that. Who would want to stand up here today and say that? Not one of us, I hope. But Jesus would say it. It almost seems like hubris, but it was true. He had no sin. So then why would the black clouds of judgment come upon the crucified Jesus? And why was he being crucified? Well, he is there not simply standing for himself. He is there as the representative of sinful humanity. He takes up their case. He takes up their situation. And he says, I will stand in their place as their substitute, as their sacrifice, as the high priest who is sacrificing for them. And so that is why the black clouds of judgment come. Not because of his sin, but because he who knew no sin became sin for us on our behalf, in our place. And that leads us to the second image. The second image <coughs> is, is that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now the veil, you remember there's three areas in the, in the temple. There is the outer court, and then there is the holy place, and then there is the holy of holies. The holy of holies is what we're talking about here. It was divided from the rest of the area in the temple by a veil, a very thick veil. And that area, the holy of holies, is where the Ark of the Covenant was, and only one person could enter into that place, and that only once a year. That was the high priest. And so... We, we, God was saying to them that the way to the presence of God had not yet been opened, but by having a sacrifice once a year, the Lord was telling them that it would be open one day. The same sacrifices repeated year after year could never do away with sin, but they pointed to the one who would come. And I encourage you, if you want to understand this more, that, that you read the book of Hebrews. Uh, because it's explained at length. But let me just share one passage from there. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, where the author there explains to us what is going on. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies, the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So what he is saying is that, and what this torn veil represents is that now the way to the most holy place is being opened. Not through the sacrifice of the, 
of the priests of the house of Aaron, but through Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who there before their very eyes was presenting that sacrifice to God so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be sprinkled, and so that we could have with full assurance of faith the confidence to enter into the very presence of God because of what Jesus was doing right there. That's the meaning of the tearing of the veil. After this had occurred, Jesus then cried out with a loud voice. And what he said was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, I have been around people who are dying, and um, I have seen that oftentimes as death comes upon them as a process, that they get kind of quieter and quieter. So what's particularly striking here is that Jesus shouts out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I think what that indicates for us is that Jesus is not going simply as someone who has been a victim, though he was a victim of sinful men, but he is going as one who is conquering death. And he's saying, I'm making the sacrifice, and it's completed, and I've paid everything, and now I give my spirit into your hands, O Father, with death having been defeated. And then he died. And our text records various reactions. It says that one of the soldiers there, a centurion, gave praise to God and said, this was a righteous man. Others, perhaps the same ones who were mocking him before, saw what had happened and beat their breast and wept. And the women who had served him so well in life were looking for an opportunity to give him one more time of service and stood at a distance. It seemed like this was the end. In their eyes, it seemed like the end. A sad conclusion to a glorious life. And now it is over. But there's one more sad event that occurs before things get turned around. That's what we consider next is the burial of Jesus. Now, as you read the rest of this text, 22 and 23, it seems like everybody's against Jesus. But what we find is that even in the the council of the elders that so adamantly and loudly called for Jesus' death and crucifixion, there was a man who did not agree and who actually believed in Jesus. And his name was Joseph of Arimathea. And so that should encourage us, too, that you know, things are not always as they seem. It's just hard to go against a herd of people rushing in one direction, right? That's what was happening here. He couldn't do it. But he did what he could. And Pilate, who was probably still thinking about all these things, still struggling with it, then received a strange request. Someone wanted the body of Jesus. And it was probably a person he knew because he was a prominent and wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph, then Pilate agreed to his request, and Joseph went to the grave, or took the body and put it in a grave that he had made most likely for himself that had been completely cut out of stone, showing how wealthy he was because most people would be just buried in a common place. He had his own tomb, And it was placed there, and he prepared to bury the body of Jesus. Now, there's an interesting side point here, and that is that as we've been talking about as we've gone through this, Isaiah chapter 53. 
Isaiah chapter 53 was a prophecy 700 years before Jesus came into the world as a human being. And there, in extreme detail, you have a description of virtually the same event, of these events that we're talking about. And one of the things that it says is that Jesus was assigned a grave, or the, the Messiah to come from the standpoint of Isaiah. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. That is, in other words, he was like one who was counted as the wicked, and yet with the rich in his death. So he's counted, as it were, with the rich. And so in fulfillment of this, Joseph puts him in his tomb. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And it was a quick, one thing we noticed about this, it was a quick burial. And the reason why is because the Sabbath was coming and they were going to do their rest. The women were preparing to, uh, to do a better burial, but they, they waited until the Sabbath day was over. And what that means is that Jesus was there entirely in the grave from Friday all the way through, through Thursday and into Sunday. So what does that mean, the fact that he was buried for us? <clears throat> well, the first thing it means is that <clears throat> he really died. That's what our Heidelberg Catechism confession said. And it's easy to just think, well, okay, we know this. But think about it. What would have happened if Jesus had died? He'd said, it is finished. He died and immediately came back to life. What would people say? He never really died, right? And so then they would say he never really rose. So it was important that he remained under the power of death for a time so that he could really show people that he had really died and that he had really risen from the dead. So it's very, very important. It's a testimony to us because both are extremely important. It's important that he actually died because the death is due to us. It's important that he actually rose because, as we shall see next week, if he doesn't rise, then the death is not accepted on our behalf. But then also we can see that Jesus was, in a way, sanctifying the grave. <clears throat> you know, we, we often have, when we have, we have a funeral... And then we'll have a graveside service or sometimes a time of scattering ashes or whatever the case may be. And, and what do people need is that in that time? They need consolation. They need comfort. Uh, I had the privilege last year of, of officiating at a graveside service of our dear friend Steve Bain. And I remember it very, very clearly when we, when we laid the, the casket down there. And then one of, one of his sons said, what we want to do is we want to take the shovel and put the uh, dirt right on top of the casket. So each person went by as it were saying goodbye to him. And of course, it was very sad because uh, we, we love him and we miss him. But in those times, it's, it's like easy to ask, well, where is Jesus in the midst of this? But what we see is Jesus has already been there. He's, uh, he's been at the graveside service because he was there in the grave. And so he's gone to the place where we commit our loved ones. And what that tells us is that Jesus meets us in death. He meets us in our burial. And one day he's going to come back and take that body that is decayed and restore it. And that spirit that is gone to be with Jesus will be united to that body 
and will live with him in joy forever. That is the message of the burial of Jesus. And so we can have confidence that Jesus has gone there. And what he's done is he's transformed death. He has taken it from being a terror in a time of hopelessness to a, something which end, ushers us into paradise. And so let, let me conclude just by summing up what we've looked at in chapters 22 through 23. We're bringing out some of the key things that I see here. So as, you, as we've looked at this, chapter 22 and chapter 23, we see all that Jesus suffered. Remember, all that he did, all that he suffered, is for us. Always add, for us. When we say that he was arrested, it was for us. When we say that he was taken, it is for us. When we say that he was on trial, it is for us. When we say he was beaten, it was for us. When you say that he was mocked and insulted, it was for us. When he was crucified, it was for us. When he died, it was for us. When he buried, it was for us. And when he will rise, it's for us as well. All of these things Jesus did out of his great and amazing love for us to take our place, what we deserve, and to, to bring us to eternal life. So the key thing here is to make sure you're part of the us to make sure you're part of the us. And who is the us? It's all those who say yes to Jesus. To say, yes, I want him as my substitute. I want him to be standing in my place. I can't do what he did. He, I can only be in the presence of God if he does it for me. We need to make sure that that's what we've said, that that's what we believe. And without that, we're not part of the us. And so that's very important. If that's not where you are today then I hope that you'll consider that. If you want to talk about it, I'm here and available, and I'd love to visit with you. But if you have said yes, then out of all these things, you should take enormous consolation because Jesus has exhausted the curse. Jesus has suffered the death that was a punishment for our sins in our place. Jesus has took out the sting of death. Jesus has taken the wrath of God in our place. So there's nothing left for us to experience in that way. Only blessing. Only blessing. And so as we think about this, it's easy, and I think in our society, you know, when we think about the future, if, if, you, if you just to watch uh, television and commercials, if they do talk about the future, usually what they talk about is retirement, Right? But what about after retirement? It's death. Not as many commercials about that. But it's something we need to think about. We all need to be ready to face it. It's a hard thing to think about, but the proper reflection upon our death can enable us to live much better. One philosopher said, he who's not ready to die is not ready to live. And we have the resource to enable us to do that, to be ready to die. Because Jesus has already gone there. He's he's gone into the jaws of death and defanged them. And he will actually be there to help us when we go. He may even send people to help us. And he's changed death, as I said, from a terror to 
a transfer to paradise. But this gives us hope not only for the life to come. It also gives us hope in this life. Because we can remember that even in the dark trials, even in the hard things of life, that the Jesus who was arrested for us, suffered for us, crucified for us, died for us, and was buried for us, will not fail to give us everything else that he can give us as well. And if he doesn't give us what we want or allows us to suffer, it's only because he has the best of reasons for it. And we can have total confidence. We can take and set anything that grieves us in this life over against his love on the cross, his love displayed in his death, and we can have confidence and hope even in the darkest hour. That is the message of the cross. We should be a people of hope. It's not that we don't feel the trials of this life. It's not that we don't feel the difficulties or the pain or the loss. But it's that we set against it the cross of Christ and we say, this is not the final word. We know the blessing is the final word because of the cross of Jesus. And so we can have total confidence, whatever comes our way, that what is really coming toward us is blessing. And not just a little bit, but far beyond what we could even ask or even what we could imagine. Amen.